You know, this is a this is a great time to be back to to uh, making music and to, after all this uh, thing everybody went through last year. You know, I mean, every interview we start, we talk, we have no choice but to inevitably touch upon it because obviously it's a subject that has affected everyone in the world. But before we get into that, um, first I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak for me. I know it's oh, such a crazy busy. People. Oh, I'm, I'm tickled to death. Hey, listen, as you'll learn during this this period of time, was I really like talk yeah so and uh, they have a lot of stories to tell that sort of thing but uh you know is last year carl we had uh about 70 some shows lined up you know to go out and do uh just in the states and i had a period of time in july uh reserved in case we wanted to come back to the uk and make it our fourth trip over yeah and uh but then all of a sudden, it this um, March 12th, uh, this year, this past year, uh, a year ago from then, everybody in the music industry, as well as a lot of other businesses, uh, were sent home and told them to take their tablet, work tablet, and work from home until further notice. And that really didn't start changing until about May of this year over in the States. Mm. And it was very frustrating. Uh, uh, for me, when, when those dates started moving, because when they sent everybody home, uh, the thing that you and I are doing right now called Zoom yeah, was ba basically um, not used that much in the industry. So uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're trying to get people on the phone and uh, people are calling me because most of the promoters have my personal number that book us and and they would say, Rich, what's up? We can't get in touch with anybody. None of your agents are answering the phone. We need to move these shows. And so <clears throat> I would text our main guy, Travis James at UTA, <laughs> and he'd send me a picture of him, him turkey hunting in camouflage <laughs> with a gun, you know, and it, he's like, I'm taking off a while, man, you know? So it, it was really good that everybody had the uh, ability to, to, you know, have cell phones, but nobody was using them because everybody went home and all of a sudden they were trying to become, uh, used to the idea of getting up and working in your pajamas or boxer shorts with a bowl of cereal mm. instead of going to the office. <clears throat> so, which had a double entendre to it because everybody became, uh, used to that circumstance and, and, and they, uh, so then when everybody told everybody, okay, in May, we're opening back up, you come back to the office, they become acclimated to the other circumstance. And, you know, you had women that worked in the, in the workforce had, um, you know, didn't need a babysitter cause they were home and they didn't need to go pick the kids up at school cause dad could do it now cause he's home. Mm. So <clears throat> all this had to flip flop back to our normal standard. No, I saw a lot of crazy stuff happen during that time. You know, a lot of kids, women crying, like, I can't believe we got to go back to work, you know? And it was almost like a, a, a lot, most kids when they're in the first grade, you know, <clears throat> they all get a little upset having to leave mom and dad and go to school. And it was kind of almost childish in a way how everybody was about that. That's, it's just an observation I had. Mm. And, uh, 
but we uh we still and i think the hardest thing on everybody or at least we're from a really large family and we live on the family farm here in kentucky and not to be able to like my son who's a drummer in blackstone cherry just lives like you know i could throw a rock almost and hit his house and then my parents house down on the farm <coughs> excuse me and uh we we could see each other out in the yard, but we couldn't go in the house and, you know, have Thanksgiving. And that was a terrible feeling. And uh, so that was probably the hardest part for us. And I'm, I'm sure everyone over in the UK can relate to that as well, because, you know, I, we were speaking to our friends that we'd met on tour over there. And uh, they were telling us at one point where they lived, you had to have an appointment to go to the grocery store. <clears throat> excuse me i've got a bug in my mouth or something well it's uh and of course the the mask that everybody wears you couldn't really recognize all your friends mm. <clears throat> that well but you go to a grocery store and everybody tried to be real careful and and that sort of thing but i tried to do a lot of my shop <clears throat> excuse me shopping <clears throat> dude i'm sorry about that oh, that's all right I've got, uh, uh, it's cold here. I hope I'm not getting the cold. I already had the COVID, so I'm over that. But Oh, uh, you had it, yeah? Yeah, we had, uh, <clears throat> Carl, we, uh, us, uh, there's a little band, that, another little band that I work with called the Georgia Thunderbolts. And uh, they, uh, I, I, I thought after helping Blackstone Cherry get started, I'd probably never, never find another bunch of kids I'd want to, really stick my neck out for and work that hard and uh those kids opened for us the thunderbolts down in georgia and well i had the bus window open and the music kicked in i said wow we might want to turn the steam up a little tonight and then this kid opened his mouth and i went and watched him and <clears throat> i literally felt like that i had unearthed a time capsule from like the early 70s of southern rock and they weren't they weren't like trying to be something they were really the real deal you know they had this greasy southern rock thing about them that you'd have to live in georgia and walk in red clay to have you know but uh <clears throat> I, I, of course got them a record deal with mascot same label blackstone's on and mm -hmm. uh we've been trying to use them on, on as many shows as we could and we played a show and i had them on it and uh we were supposed to play outdoors it had a huge venue there to play in, but the, they had it set up to play outdoors with a big stage and all. And uh, it started really looking risky for rain. So we made the call to move indoors, which was not a good plan mm -hmm. because three of us, uh, Fred, my brother who plays drums, myself, and uh, our sound man, Steve Wilson, who's been with us 30 years, three of us got COVID the next day and then uh, three of the Georgia Thunderbolts. So... You know, here we, here we are already being glad to be back to work and uh, having to cancel two weeks of show. And then I had the Thunderbolts leaving and going out with Marshall Tucker band and had to cancel those. So oh, <coughs> it's frustrating, but it's almost now an inevitability that at some point or another it was going to hit you in some way. Um, you know, you're here, you're, you know, you got through it. So that's 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 good or good. Right, right. It's just, if, if I could just get rid of these confounded allergies I still have, you know, uh, 
Kentucky is well known for uh, maple sugar trees. And so right now the leaves are falling and I don't care if you are indoors, you know, if you've got allergies or you're allergic to maple leaves, <clears throat> you get this right here. So actually it doesn't help to take allergy medicine. It's, you know, I do, but I, I don't think that it, it, it can turn away the elements, you know? <laughs> no, I think it's often more placebo than anything else. I love talking to someone like yourself from your location because, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in the concrete jungle that is London, the capital of England. And uh, so green, green, greenery country, anything like that is uh, very far removed. Right. Well, yeah, we're very fortunate. We, uh, we live on a family farm. It's mm. uh, been uh, <clears throat> in our family, some of it for, uh, since the Revolutionary War, which I guess it's okay to talk about that with you guys. <laughs> but it's actually General Nathaniel Green, uh, many of our, one of our many, many great grandfathers was one of his sidekicks during the war. And so all of his officers, they were given uh, a track of land uh, when, they, when uh, you know, the country was finally uh, settled. And uh, we had actually our family got 7,000 acres. And, you know, over the years, uh, families don't want to keep their part or they, you know, that sort of thing. And so over the past couple, 300 years, it's dwindled down. My dad was able to hang on to 250 acres of it. Plus, we have another 500, that, you know, uh, down the road where we were actually raised, where the music house is and that sort of thing. But mm. it's a funny story. Uh, my dad told me uh, we've lost both of our parents in the past four years, but uh, which is they were really the matriarch and patriarch of what we did, you know, and uh, <clears throat> always looked adverse. They weren't go to concert parents that much, you know, but they uh, believed in us. Uh, they never really ever said, uh, cut your hair and get a job, boy. You know, they believed in what we were doing, that sort of thing. So uh, my dad and I, b before he passed, uh, he wanted to go over to the, the farm, what we call the, the, the old place, Big Meta. Mm. And uh, he just, he hadn't been over there for a few years and they just picked soybeans off of it. So we drove over there and <clears throat> all these big fields, you know, were clear. And he goes, you know, Richard, isn't it amazing that this used to be always be plum and peach orchards? And I said, no, I didn't, Daddy. And I'm thinking he's being old, you know. <clears throat> he said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, our family hundreds of years ago actually made plum and peach brandy for the uh, for the government. And I'm going, so we were bootleggers? <laughs> he goes, no, it was legal. But he said that's kind of how our family got their start and that and farming. And, and so I almost, Daddy never explained. He never told us that in all of our years. He never said, and I guess he thought maybe his time was coming short. And he said, maybe I better pass this along so the guys know it, you know. But it was just, it was a family secret, I guess, from hundreds of years ago. And so he, I thought maybe he was just old and spilled the beans accidentally, but it's, I think he just wanted us to know it in the end. Part of, he was a historian and English teacher for 39 years. So, uh, but it's, it's always great to find out things, most of the time, that is, about your family. <laughs> you know, hey, sometimes things get dug up, you know, you wish it stayed buried, I guess. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, let's it's, it's, it's face it. I mean, over here in the States, we all came from 
where you guys live or, or mainland Europe. So uh, there weren't that many of us. So there's a, a deep kinship of, of uh, family there. You know, you can find out my, my dad was also a genealogist and he found, you know, uh, he always traced back family records. And so a lot of people, um, you know, you find out people that you were kin to or related to from way back when, and people go, that's impossible. You couldn't be kin to them. And, and they, but they are too. They just don't realize that there's only so many of us that came over here in the beginning, you know? Mm. So, uh, cause we didn't really have, uh, you know, uh, people coming over from all different dialects and countries, you know, at that time, mainly just from where you guys live, you know, in Scotland and Ireland and, you know, Germany or whatever. So, uh, <clears throat> it's pretty close knit bunch of people. And of course, over the years, that's disseminated quite a bit, but, uh, I know my dad had us traced back to, uh, actually George Washington, our first president, his really? wife. Yeah. Was a relative. And then, uh, Daniel Boone, the famous, you know, frontiersman. And, uh, you know, you, you're almost afraid to tell people that, uh, you know, we have records of it, but the thing of it is you're afraid to say anything about it at school. And you tell some kid that, or you tell a teacher and they say, what are you lost your mind, <laughs> you know? but, but it's, 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 you know, something that we're all, and if you could trace back the early records of your family, uh, just like you guys, I mean, uh, Lord knows what you guys have it back to, because the thing that I, I you know, it, it, like the 14th century or 13th century or something, you guys could be traced back to. And, uh, <clears throat> but I, I find that all very interesting. And, uh, another thing that I, as I said, I wouldn't fly for 34 years. So, uh, Blackstone Cherry kept coming over, you know, and doing well in the UK and they would come home and John Fred would say, dad, you got to get on an airplane. I'm telling you, y'all have a whole nother life over there. There's not an interview or a day goes by that somebody doesn't ask when's your dad's band coming over the headhunters. And they always would say, well, probably never daddy won't fly. And I guess they got tired of hearing it. So they cornered me down on the farm one day and said, listen, the jig's up, daddy, you're going to get on an airplane. We're going to find you some gigs over there. And you know, you know how, when you, uh, Carl, when you, somebody bugs you about something so much, you find just says, okay, okay, sure. Mean hoping that they'll forget about it. Yep. Well, they always didn't forget. And they called me a week later and said, dad, you're not going to believe it. We got you on this great rock festival over in Sweden. And I was like, wait a minute. It was called Sweden rocks. And, and I'm like, and I was like, wait a minute. I didn't say anything about no Sweden. I said, I would go to the UK. Yeah, but you got to do this daddy Queens headliner that day. And you're going to get seen by thousands and thousands of people. Well, and we did, but I got to tell you, Carl, the minute they told me and I knew I had to get on a plane, I was a nervous wreck. I, I, I didn't sleep for three months. And, uh, but I, I had a, a little friend that I graduated from high school with who became uh went to college and then and then moved to atlanta georgia and became an airline stewardess and she's now my age 66 so she only flies you know uh overseas to, to europe and uk and that sort of thing and uh special privileges i guess you call that are too old to be on the all flights and 
But anyway, she, uh, I called her cause I knew she had a lot of experience with planes and that. And she said, Richard, you'll be fine. I said, listen, I've got, you know, I go to the UK all the time. I'll just, you tell me when you're going and I'll just make sure that I'm on the plane. Oh, cool. And I thought, Oh, great. So I'll, you know, that'll make me feel better. <clears throat> so that was the Swedish gig. And, uh, so anyway, she booked the flyover. And then the morning of, we had played the night before in Atlanta so we could be there at the airport because at that time we didn't have direct flights from Nashville, we do now. And uh, she calls me and she says, Richard, I can't go. I've got my grandson sick. And I'm going, holy mackerel. Now what do I do? So he said, you'll be fine. But I got on there. And the uh, I guess that the boys had kind of, all the rest of the crew and the band had kind of, alerted the stewardesses that I might get a little nervous because, you know, when they shut the doors and they're starting up the engine, everybody in the band's like looking at me, like, is he going to go off? <laughs> you know? And, uh, anyway, the stewardess, one of them came, got me and said, Mr. Young, would you like to sit back here in the back with us? And so, uh, I said, well, yeah, I can I said, you, you'll be more comfortable. And she meant everybody else would be more comfortable if you get out of here, you know? So I went back there and they set me down by the refrigerator and it was full of Heineken beer. So I, I just enjoyed myself terribly talking to those pretty stewardesses and being, having that Heineken beer. So I don't even hardly, hardly, it didn't bother me at all. And then we almost getting ready to get home. And, uh, we flew from Malmo, Sweden into Denmark. And we're going to fly to Atlanta <clears throat> and, you know, John Fred calls me up again. I said, if I can just get back to Atlanta, get back on the ground in the States, I won't have to do this again. And John Fred calls me in Denmark, dad, you're not going to believe it. We're going to play the rambling man festival. We're going to be headlining and we want you guys to come and be one of our opening acts. And I'm like, Oh man, I ain't even got home yet. Now you're wanting me to go back. So we decided if we were going to come to the UK, we weren't just going to fly over and play one show. So, um, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, our, our booking agent over there, Martin, uh, Jarvis, who helps us terribly a lot. He, uh, <clears throat> he actually, uh, started booking some other rooms. So we played, uh, uh, the borderline first in London. Mm. And then we went from that to the Ramblin' Man in Moat Park. And we went ahead and played six other rock, famous rock clubs in the UK. And uh, we did it all in eight days straight, which was, that was a marathon thing for a bunch of older guys that, uh, now we weren't uncomfortable. We were in a, we didn't have a comfort of our little bus, you know, tour bus. Mm. Like, you know, Blackstone Cherry had two buses, but we had none over here, you know, so over there, but. Uh, it was nice. I mean, it was a Mercedes with captain's chairs, you know, those sprinter vans. And, uh, the hardest part for us was to, uh, we'd been used to getting on the bus here at home and, and going out and waking up and we're in the town we're going to. And, uh, this way we had to, uh, well, well we had to go to hotels and sleep and get up at eight o'clock in the morning, take showers and leave to go yeah. to the next town. And we had a um, big Mike Allen, who's somewhat of a famous guy that drives, he's retired Scotland Yard that drives uh, bands around when they come over from the States. Uh, and uh, 
he's, as I said, he's retired Scotland Yard, so he's somewhat of a uh, uh, very uh, disciplined guy. Yeah. So I know the first morning after we played the borderline, we were headed to, um, to over to Ramblin' Man. Is Fred and I were a minute late coming downstairs, and he looks at his watch and he said. I thought I said eight o'clock, not eight oh one. So we kind of got the message that we were going to be, uh, you know, watched over very carefully. And uh, I know it, it was it was kind of hard to switch from, you know, sleeping till ten o'clock in the morning on a tour bus or eleven, and and then to have to get up and you take a shower and ride, you know, 150, 200 miles. Hmm. But uh, it was it was it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we liked it so much. We've been back twice since then and played eight more. And I thought, you know, it's pretty amazing. We pamper ourselves over here in North America and with the, you know, the bus and all that and the five man crew and everything. And, you know, we actually, it was fun because it was like when we were kids again, riding in our old potato chip van, uh, you know, going down the road. And I was especially proud of myself because we, uh, Mike and I always sit up front and he drove and, <clears throat> you know, after about 30 minutes, I'd look back and the whole band and crew, the rest of the guys were all sound asleep, you know? And I'm like, I never took a nap the whole time we were over there. So me being next to the oldest, I thought that was uh, pretty remarkable. Hmm. Yeah. At least for me, it was, <laughs> I mean, cause uh obviously it's such a massive difference as you say you can pretty much do most of our major cities in the uk in a in a week and because as you said it's not like a oh it takes you 10 hours to drive from one city to another in this country you can be there in a matter of two or three hours depending upon traffic one thing we've got is a ton of bloody traffic right well and you know the thing carl that that i enjoyed the most about that was we actually you know in america I mean, I've been past the Grand Canyon probably 50 times in my life in the middle of the night, but I've never been there in the daytime and seen it, Oh, you know? So what was great about being over there and being with Mike and having the Sprinter van is I sat up front and I got to see all the landscape and the castles and, you know, actually our family came from England uh, on my grandmother's side, the Shirley's. So I got to see where the Shirley castle was and, uh, which, you know, just all that kind of thing. Cause big Mike, our family, uh, came from up around the, uh, North side of England before you get into Scotland. And, uh, so Mike, we're going down the road and he says, yeah, but I, I don't want to disappoint me, but, but I want you to know about your family over here is they're notably known for either to be, uh, royalty or criminals. And I said, Oh, okay. So, <laughs> he said more toward the criminal side. <laughs> and so he was joking, of course, I hope. Back but then uh, all the royals were criminals anyway, so it kind oh, of yeah. works out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, uh, we, uh, and I, well, you know, I, I'm, I was amazed at the, at the uh, agriculture over there. You know, you guys make use of every ounce of farmland. Mm. And uh, actually our farm, is we're not the we're not the kind of farms like they have at Lexington where they have all the big fancy fences and stuff. Ours are kind of the fence rows are kind of grown up in what we call honeysuckle and things like that. So I felt right at home with the hedgerows. You know that's kind of what our 
and you I, you don't see barbed wire you don't see uh, a whole lot of uh it's just real clean over there it, and once you get out in the country i thought and real well managed and that sort of thing and uh i know when we got up close to scotland i started seeing these little white specks all over the the uh hillside and I said, well, what is that? And it was sheep. <laughs> it amazed me. And, and also your cattle, your milk cows. I mean, good gracious, y'all's milk cows look like they could win this Kentucky State Fair. I mean, they're all, there's so much greenery for them over there. And you guys don't have to feed as much hay as we do. We have to feed a lot of forage. Uh, my brother and I just bought 300 rolls for our cattle. And we're actually thinking about buying more. They're 1,200 pound rolls, huh. and we put them out. And but it seems like if it's already getting that cold here, it's supposed to frost tonight. Um, and I got this afternoon. My job is I got to hit our, our family garden because uh, we've got a lot of we raise a lot of peppers, like hot peppers and uh, green and red peppers and that sort of thing. And uh, as well as other garden species of thing, corn, beans, and what have you. But our peppers were late this year, so they're just now about getting ready to pull. So this afternoon, the whole family's going to have to hit the garden, and we're going to have to get our peppers because the frost hits them. They're, they're kind of they're gone. Do you, do you sell sell them? No, no. We use them. We get, we give them away to neighbors and family, and we use a lot of them. We can a lot up. The past two or three years, I have not had time to do something. I, I really like to take jalapenos oh, yeah. and serrano peppers. And what I do is a little recipe here is to save them is uh, you get the little uh, quart jars or a pint and uh, you get uh, uh, apple cider vinegar and pour it into a big uh, chili type kettle and you boil that vinegar and then you, uh, you cut up the peppers of course, you cut the end of stem off and, and just dice them up. And then you cram those jars full of them and you put one tablespoon of salt on top of the peppers. Then you pour, take a cup and you fill it up with that cider vinegar and put your top on it. Then when it pops at top, that means it's sealed. And so you've got uh, for a year almost, you've got jalapenos to have for cooking or serranos. Uh, some of the species don't do as well. You're, uh, you're uh, like normal red peppers or green. You get in the grocery sweet peppers don't can as well, but man, those jalapenos, I actually won the, the local County, uh, fire with uh, uh, a jar of my pickles, uh, a couple of years ago before COVID hit, we had, uh, I had some that had turned red and some that were still green and I mixed those and they were so Christmassy looking. So. <laughs> I had about 40 jars of them. So I went around the neighborhood on the Christmas Eve morning and delivered all these peppers to everybody. And, uh, I don't, I, I didn't know at the time what caused it, but the, the, we have a, a Mexican restaurant here and the fellow that owned it, I took him a bushel of peppers before it frosted that year. And he said, Richard, he said, I'm from Mexico. I've never tasted jalapenos this hot. What's your secret? And I said, I don't know. It must be the saw or something. But then I got to thinking back. I didn't know when I was first starting this at the time, uh, uh, you know, that you need to keep like, there's a pepper called a habanero, which is oh, it's too hot, too hot for people to eat. And I thought I'd experiment and grow a row of those too. But I put them next door to my jalapenos 
Well, not beknownst to me, they cross-pollinated. So the jalapenos picked up from the habaneros. So it was uh, a lesson learned, you know, but they were really good. You know, I liked them. It wasn't wasn't that hot, but a little more normal than the normal jalapenos. And those are great in Chile. We, uh, we, you know, we, uh, uh, on our farm, we have a lot of wildlife. So we turkey hunt for wild turkey and also for deer. And, uh, man, there's nothing better. My wife made something last night. It's a deer chili. Ground, you ground up deer meat and then you chili. A lot of people don't like venison because mm. they really don't know how to cook it. Right. You gotta, you gotta have, uh, there's nothing better than fried tenderloin, you know, and, uh, a little biscuit, you know, and butter, as you can tell, I haven't missed any of those meals. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible. Um, what keeps you constantly busy? I mean, we even we haven't even started to touch upon the Kentucky headhunters, what you're currently doing right now. I, I want to ask you then, considering how you've ridden out the wave of COVID, what about the band overall? Do you guys as a unit think you've come out stronger from this COVID period? Uh, well, this is 53 years for Fred and Greg and I, and then Doug Phelps, who sings in place bass, 36 years mm. headhunters. So I don't think in our, well, I know not in our lifetime, uh, have we had been, had to be faced as we all have. Yeah. Everyone in the world has been faced with something probably not as, uh, disastrous as the, Spanish flu in 1918 uh, that was so dramatic and killed so many. And uh, I know my grandmother got it and was in college in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and, and almost lost her life. But uh, the, uh, I, I think, yes, it, what it did, Carl, to me mm-hmm. is, uh, and I'll kind of slide into talking about the album here a little bit, uh, while we were all off, you know, we got to sit back and look and think over 53 years, what turns did we do right? And what turns did we do wrong? Right. And so kind of assess what you, where you'd been, where you come from, where you'd been. And cause you know, a lot of folks may not know this, but we uh, having that old farmhouse, I guess we got, you know, pretty good quite early. And, uh, so when we got out of high school, uh, Capricorn records, which was the famous, uh, Southern rock label in Georgia, who had the Almond brothers and, uh, you know, wet Willie, a lot of the great Southern rock bands, Charlie Daniels was on the label. Um, they, uh, they, they, they hooked us right up. I mean, as soon as we got out of school, we actually were moved to atlanta and start playing bars around there and kind of they were grooming us i guess to be a part of that and then the label started to go wane because you know southern rock and this was 76 77 so it was kind of tail end so it's starting to go south a little bit and uh you know uh then leonard skinner crashed you know that october 77 matter of fact you see i would have been the 20th, I think just a few days ago, you know, many years ago. And so the next morning we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, 
nobody's going to sign a Southern rock band right now because Leonard Skinner was carrying the torch for it, you know, and there were a lot of other Southern rock bands, but they were the, the true one that was really carrying the torch. And so we packed up our little bread truck and came home and licked our wounds and went back to, you know, playing four or five states around here and bars and things, rock bars that would allow you to do originals. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do a bunch of covers. You know, we, we wanted to play our original material. If we did do a cover, we'd change it. Like we take drive my car by the Beatles and do our own thing with it as an example, you know? And, uh, so that winter, that next winter it, it started really snowing badly and we had a huge snow and we were all kind of trapped down at mom and daddy's house on the farm and uh we started going through album covers said you know man we we got a lot of great original material it's time to start looking in another direction for a, a, maybe a record deal mm. so we got out the album covers and started looking and looking and we came up on led zeppelin swan song records and uh we had now there's the label to be on, and, you know, and of course, you know, to show you how ignorant we were, it was Friday afternoon at five o'clock home, which was six o'clock in New York city. Somehow or another, I don't know how I did it. I got a phone number for Swan Song Records office and we just called them up at six o'clock on Friday evening. There's nobody at a record company on Friday afternoon at six o'clock, but and you know, when we finally did go to Swan Song, there was a lady there when you, they had the Rockefeller Plaza the whole floor. And when the doors opened up, there was this lady sit there that would remind you a whole lot of Colonel Clink's uh, secretary on Hogan's Heroes. Nobody got past Helen, but she was gone. But there was a young fella named Mitchell Fox that worked for the label. And he was actually the same age as me at the time, 21. And uh, we, uh, he, he could never resist. Mitchell can't resist that, not answer a phone if it rings. So okay. he was leaving the office late and picked up the phone. And I guess I got him on there and did a spiel with him or something. And he said, okay, I got to come see the band. I got to come see you. So, uh, he flew to Louisville, Kentucky. And he actually said, uh, and he was quite New York, by the way, uh, uh, upper crust, uh, uh, Jewish boy from great neck, New York and uh <clears throat> very dry at first and uh so he said i'm gonna fly in he picked me up at the airport at eight o'clock and then i'll watch the set and then i'll f fly back on a red eye yeah and so anyway long story short we fell in love with each other and we had to push him to the turnstile on fry on sunday you know took him to the airport and became great buddies and uh to this day, we're still, uh, he's like, he's like mine and Fred's other brother, you know, and he actually lives in Nashville now and has a family and, uh, has a restaurant. He, he kind of, he used to completely, uh, well, he still does, but it's, you know, not like it used to be our manager, you know, but he still is my go-to guy. Yeah. So I managed to band these days alone. It used to just be he and I, and we had a one-two punch thing. So I still use, we still use the one-two punch when we need it. But <clears throat> long story short, everybody in, uh, we started doing demos and everybody in the New York office at Swan Song loved the band, said, we got to get them on the label, you know? So let's get the demos together. And Mitchell, you need to go, you need to go talk to Peter. 
which was Peter Grant. And uh, there's actually a book out, uh, Peter Grant, uh, you know, world's greatest rock manager, whatever, Led Zeppelin and Beyond. Yeah. If you haven't read it and you like music, you should read it because it takes his life from um, being a guy that swept up popcorn in the theater to managing one of the biggest bands of all time in rock. Incredible. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, so Mitchell, Mitchell calls Peter and he flies over there. And it tells in the book that Mitchell stayed in the house for three days or castle, I guess, whatever, where Peter lived. And he said he could hear him. He could hear him upstairs walking around, but he wouldn't come down. So <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. He paid Mitchell to fly this over, but he's, he never came down. And so he told Mitchell, finally, he said, just leave the tape in the fishbowl and uh, I need you back in New York. And, uh, so the fishbowl actually was a fishbowl that was full of cassette tapes that Peter had received. And, you know, when they went through them after his death, you know, there was Metallica, U2, all these bands that sent their cassettes. And we happened to be one of them. And uh, before we could actually get, and, and, and the fact that New York was very interested, eventually they would have gotten to Peter and yeah. talk to him, which would have talked to Jimmy and the guys and all that. But before we could make that happen, Mitchell hadn't been back for just a few days since John Bonham passed. And so there goes another thing, you know, it's amazing how things, people that live 7,000 miles away from you can change your life like that, mm. just in the blink of an eye. And that really, it, that really set us back a little bit because it was such a great opportunity and, and such a happy time and things were going so well and, and to have that happen. And not to mention the fact that, you know, my favorite rock band was gone as well as the opportunity with swan song. So, uh, we did, we did overcome it and eventually decided we'd take another stab at it. And we're still playing bars, you know, and yeah. all, all of us were doing picking, playing with other people, not me. I'm, uh, I, I was a songwriter. They could froze for a while. And so, but the other three boys were playing, uh, you know, with uh, country acts for the most part and uh, to make money. And because uh, all of a sudden country was starting to change and you had these talented rock musicians that, you know, everybody was trying to get. So obviously Greg, Fred, and Doug came in there. And when we, <clears throat> we started to, uh, Decided in 86, we were going to make another stab at it. And uh, uh, Anthony, our other cousin, uh, our mothers or sisters, mm -hmm. decided he'd just gotten married and he had a day job and we were just playing on the weekends. And he said, God, I don't know if I can take another butt kicking like the last two we had, you know. Yeah. And it was. It was hard. It was a big letdown. And uh, so anyway, Greg had been playing with Doug Phelps and, and a rockabilly singer, Ronnie McDowell's band. And, uh, Doug, he wanted us to hear Doug. He said, maybe Doug would work. So Fred and I actually snuck into a gig and watched him play. We didn't want to, you know, make the meeting if, if it didn't look right. So anyway, we liked Doug and what he, he was a nice looking fella. And, and, uh, so we came up to the music house and, and, uh, we just, you know, all bonded. And, uh, so Doug was young, a little younger than us. And we had a, or at least we thought we had 
uh, a great training of, of the background of blues and R&B and that sort of thing and knew how to play it. And in all honesty, we went back to the ground floor and relearned everything that we thought we knew right. correctly. Like, you know, a lot of bands play the song Johnny Be Good that Chuck Berry did. And, uh, but m most of them play it like uh, a VFW band. It's a thing, and it's really, you know, and that was that came from Johnny Johnson left hand chuck learned how to adapt uh which it took me forever my brother and i only fist fight we almost had <laughs> because i wouldn't practice hard enough to learn to play i'll figure out how that groove went and because i was lazy and he would not let me out of the practice house so i learned it one night and it's you know i wouldn't take anything for that experience because it basically if you if you do that right on a rhythm guitar you can actually move the whole room without a band being there. And that's what Chuck figured out, yeah. but it came from Johnny Johnson, which, uh, if folks haven't heard, uh, the albums that Johnny did, uh, we actually did his second solo album with him recorded and wrote it. And, uh, he, that this all came about through the movie, hell, hell, rock and roll. And, <clears throat> and, uh, which is a, basically a documentary about Chuck Berry's life. Mm. And, uh, Keith Richards was asked to be the band leader for the finale grand finale show and put together a Cracker Jack band for it. And, uh, so he said, I'll do it on one condition. If we can put Johnny Johnson and Chuck Berry back together, <laughs> because in reality, Johnny had a whole lot to do with the writing of those songs, but was never compensated. So, and Keith knew this from Ian Stewart, the Stones pianist. So anyway, they got, uh, they got together and they did the movie. And it was real funny because, you know, in those days, Johnny was Chuck's band leader. So it was real funny in the movie. If you look at it, you see, you see him pointing at Keith Richards and Eric Clapton, Clapton and telling them how to play the song. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing, you know? So then, you know, they say, wait a minute, who is this guy that's telling them how to play these songs? And <clears throat> of course we knew who Johnny was because we'd listened to Chuck Berry ever since we were infants and, and, uh, had only learned to do it right a few years. And then, so anyway, Clapton and Keith did a solo album with NRBQ, the new rhythm and blues quartet's part of the band. His first ever solo album was released on Electron on such. And it did so well that they wanted to do a second album on him. And it was actually Pierre who works for Keith because Keith was saying, you know, we can't be flying these tapes around again, I guess all over the country or whatever, you know, it took forever. And so I think Pierre suggested, why don't you get the headhunters to do it? So they, you know, they play this stuff well and they write well. So, and they've Johnny would love going down on the farm. So as it all came out between the record label people, Nancy Jeffers and our management people and us and Johnny, we, we got it together and he came to the farm and you got to know being on this farm, this little quaint house down on the Creek, here we are sitting, waiting for Johnny to drive up and get out and walk up that walkway. I mean, it was, uh, woo. <laughs> anyway, we did his first, we did his second solo album. And I'll be honest with you, we had to go back and, 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 uh, and really, uh, school ourselves because Johnny had talked to me on the phone. He said, 
Now I don't want to really, I don't want to do no more country music like I do with Chuck Berry, and I don't want to do really rock and roll. I want this to be more of a jazz album, mm-hmm. a jazz rock album. And I'm like, oh boy. So, you know, I started pulling out my Billy Holiday albums, and you know, just getting the vibe of that sort of thing, and it came out quite well, and we became instant friends, and. uh you know, Johnny would go out, we'd go out and tour on that. We did things like the Conan O'Brien TV show and people can look that up and Google. It's quite interesting because, uh, right, right before Johnny does a solo on TV, he goes, blows his nose and hangs him and puts it back and it tears into it. Didn't care, man, you know? And so, uh, we, uh, we were doing our solo album and we'd cut the old Freddie King song up but uh, Billy Miles wrote called Have You Ever Loved a Woman or Going To and we said man we need Johnny on this so we called the house and Aunt Francis as we called her later his wife said uh, Johnny is out with Rolling Stones he's doing a guest appearance tonight's the last night there at the Reliance Stadium in Houston Texas and so here's a number of a guy the road manager or whatever and got Johnny on the phone I said Johnny we want you to come and play on this song Okay, I just changed my flight, and y'all picked me up in Louisville, Kentucky. <clears throat> and uh, so we did, but in the meantime, Francis let me know that he uh, he was quite ill with kidney cancer, and she wanted us to keep him there and let him go to mom and daddy's, eat all the country ham he wanted, red-eyed gravy, whatever. And it uh, wasn't any point in trying to worry about being healthy at this point and uh, let him, you know, smoke cigars, whatever Johnny did. Yeah. And she said, most of all, I want you to take the time to record some music with him while he's there, write and record some things with him. And so we basically put our album on hold for three or four days. And when Johnny got there, we were literally wrote most of the album while he was there. I mean, we pulled a couple of songs off the first, his solo album. Uh, the Stumlin song, which gets played quite a bit in the UK on the radio. And then, uh, you know, I was literally between solos or whoever singing, me or Doug, we'd be like in the room writing the lyrics uh, while those guitar solo and piano solos were going on as we went. And, uh, you know, I took the tapes home and put them away and <clears throat> Johnny passed. And then Francis called a few years ago and said, Richard, I'm not doing too well. And I want you to get that album out. So we pull the tapes out and we're thinking, okay, we're going to have to probably, this was done so quickly and the lyrics, maybe some lyrics got to be rewritten or whatever, man, we put that stuff up on the, on the tape machine and it was all there. I mean, we never touched it. It was just like God did it or something, you know, crazy. Incredible. Yeah. So I called Bruce. Bruce Eaglar, that is, in Chicago at the Alligator Records, which is the premier blues label, uh, you know, in America. And uh, I sent him the tapes and he he freaked, loved it. And so Alligator put it out and it, you know, went to number one and all that jazz. And it was a big thing to have, which was actually our own album with Johnny playing, where the first album was his solo album with us, you know, featured. So, but, uh, you know, I've got to do a lot of fun things, Carl, you know, and we've, hey, between the farm and the music, we've lived a charmed life. 
I love that you can talk like that as well. In the current period of releasing a brand new album, we are, what, a few days away uh, from when it was just actually released. Where's your head at with That's a Fact, Jack? How how pleased are you with the early reaction? Or have you been paying much attention to it? Uh, oh, no, I've had to pay great attention to it because uh, I, I'm, I'm talking to people um, as you and I are talking, doing mm. interviews for it. All of the boys are, you know, uh, divide the interviews up depending on the direction, that sort of thing. But uh, I actually, uh, if I didn't have so many other stories to tell you, I would love for Doug to done this with you because he, I heard you like, uh, you know, old monsters and stuff and, and, and spooky shows. Yeah, it's, and, a, it's a major Doug, part of our thing. No, I, you know, we're on the bus. I mean, it, Doug, uh, they'll sit there and watch that for hours on end, you know, and said, okay, sorry, Doug, it's time for gun smoke or Lucille ball. Here we go. And, uh, but, uh, it's the reaction has been uh, very pleasing. And as I said earlier, when we went in, we went in cold Turkey. We didn't get to rehearse because Greg did have the COVID before we went in. Hmm. We didn't want to get him out in the elements. So we went in with just our little cassette tapes and normally we, we would go in the practice house, but it was so cold and we don't really have great heat there. It's, we have to use kerosene heaters and things. There's no running water, which I love about it. And there's no address, <laughs> you know, I mean, they, I know we should nine one one. I always want to the man, you got to give us a dress. <laughs> something happened. And I said, it's the only place in the world that all the neighbors know where it's at. If something happens, we'll call them on the phone. But, you know, it's, it's we kind of pride that it's the house with no address. Absolutely. And, you know, but uh, we went in, you know, and, and, and we did something uh, this time we've never done. Uh, we didn't go in and say, okay, this is going to be a Southern rock album. It's going to be a blues album. It's going to be a, a country Southern rock blues album or whatever jazz. Yeah. And we just went in and we said, okay, we, and, and we'll go back to what you said. You asked about the COVID thing and what it actually did to us. And it did. We went back and, and said, you know, the one thing that, that we've always never done is let everybody just pick out whatever songs. I mean, everybody, this is a very democratic band. You, you know, you, you might come in with lyrics and melody, but it ain't your song till everybody else writes on it. You yeah. know, it's always been that way. That's the way to be. I learned that from the Beatles. Too bad there wasn't more of that going around then, you know. They might still be here, but, um, and uh, no offense to the living Beatles, but uh, I, I do believe that. No and fact. I learned that. And I've watched that over the years, you know, and so beside, and, and the writing is always that way. And it always has been with us since itchy brother days starting in 68. But the one thing that we hadn't really paid attention to is let everybody sing. What song would you like to sing on the record, Fred? What, what song would you like to sing, Greg? And uh, of course, Doug and I have always done mainly done most of the lead vocal, but we just can't went in and everybody pick what you want to sing, what you want to play makes no difference. You know, it could be anything from polka to metal. We don't care. 
then we're going to have fun with this because, you know, somehow or another, we've seemed to have survived this COVID thing, you know, and, uh, let's just, you know, we're very lucky to all be here. So let's just have fun. And we did. And it was very interesting that, uh, Greg actually picked the song called shotgun Effie that's on the record, which was our first single we ever released in our lives. Yeah. Ditchy brother in 1973 and Greg wanted to go back and revisit that he said yeah man you know we did that on a four four track bogan pa let's go back and you know do it in the studio and it's really funny because there's not 10 percent difference in the two two different versions you know one on a bogan and one on the you know big multi-track uh mixer and uh but, and then Fred wanted Greg to sing Cheap Tequila, Rick Derringer's song. And because that Fred had always loved that song ever since, you know, All American Boy came out and, and uh, with Derringer on it, with Rick on it. And then Johnny Winters did a version. And I think we fell somewhere in the middle, but in the end, Fred was determined we were going to do it. So he said, well, I'll just sing it, which was brilliant because it came out sounding like a, a Kentucky guy mixed with david bowie and ian anderson or something you know it's very strange but it he, he sells it you know and uh they sells the song in a different way yeah and, uh, and then cup of tea uh fred sang which is uh, uh you know as i said our first time after i start would fly when we came to the uk is Fred basically wrote that song about our first night in London yeah. and how would it be, you know, when we started in 68, wouldn't it have been great to have been able to come over for the mercy beat and been there and, you know, when Twiggy and, and all that Carnaby scene was going on and Fred has very insightful, I think how he wrote it about a girl boy love situation. And he talks about, uh, you know, calling the people back home. And, you know, everybody's asking, what's a dog and bone? Well, dog and bone is the old time phone. The box part is the dog and the bone is the handle. Where does he come up with this stuff? But it's true. And then lemon and lime, I guess that that's an old time saying of folks about uh, tea time. Is that correct? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not great on my cockney. I'll be honest. Dog and bone, yeah, but that one I'm not great on. <laughs> okay, but anyway, Fred, Fred had uh, always heard those sayings from from the UK, and I guess uh, you know adapted them into that the lyric he wrote for it. So, and it's a great take on it. Brilliant lyrics, and uh, I heard somebody say the other day it's uh, uh, country meets Carnaby Street, 1968, which is true. You what know, a wonderful description. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, and then of course Doug and I split up the ride, and then uh, T.J. Lyle happened to be uh, from the Georgia Thunderbolts. The singer happened to be down on the farm visiting for a couple of weeks, and uh, he and I, or Fred and he, wrote some of the lyrics uh, for two or three songs, and uh, so it was great to have him in there. And then the big kicker that most people don't know is the second song on the record, uh, How Could I, was actually um, written by myself and Blackstone Cherry 
in 2008. Really? Yeah, it was a, it was a group of songs we wrote for, I think it was 2008, for the second album, uh, Folklore and Superstition. And, uh, you know, the label just was actually wanting, rather than me produce the second album, they wanted uh, Bob Marlett to do it, who did Ozzy and some other people. And I was fine with that, but Bob wanted to, to write songs for the album. So all those songs got pushed aside and there are many great ones there. And some of them have shown up. Matter of fact, uh, if my heart had wings came out of that bunch of songs, it's on Blackstone's new album. And, uh, so I, that song had always, it got passed over and it, but it always stuck with me. It's like, man, I think the headhunters could do this song, you know, yeah. obviously they could cause I'd help write it. But, uh, I think we gave it a different spin than what Blackstone Cherry ha would have had on it. And, uh, they're excited to death that they've got a song on the headhunters album. So <laughs> yeah, I owe, them, I owe them about 50, 60 more with all the songs I've written with them, but you know, we're getting a start there anyway. Yeah. One down. What about the songs you do lead vocals on? Uh, do you have a personal flavor of the lyrical content that you just enjoyed singing the watercolors in the rain title track? Uh, let's get all together. Let's all get together and fight. Well, you know, the story I, I, I'll, the story behind let's all get together and fight goes back to the, the COVID message, uh, where I'm sitting right here at my desk, <clears throat> uh, a year ago, well, almost a year ago, last Thanksgiving, you know, as I said, you know, here we are, my son lives five seconds from me and then our family farm in the practice house, it's all right here in this area. And, you know, here's the kids out playing in the yard and we have to wave at them and, stand at the yard don't come too close now yeah. and you know that sort of thing and then thanksgiving comes uh which is the american holiday you know and uh turkey day we call it too you yeah. know and so here we are sitting at home and my wife gets up that morning and puts some deer roast and some red you know red potatoes and onions and carrots and all this in the in the uh, crock pot and you know that's not what we eat for thanksgiving we have turkey and wild turkey and deer and, and country ham and all this stuff and everybody shows up yeah and uh, there's always one or two though that we don't see all year distant relatives that show up and they for some reason though they just gotta get noticed they start a spree then you know some kind of a little uh run-in with, with someone and uh or some lady made a cake that nobody liked and she gets upset about it or whatever it is. Yeah. I know I, lots of times I have cut pieces of cake out, but the waste can't put toilet tissue over it. So nobody or paper towels. So we can hold that one down, <laughs> but I'm sitting here and I'm going, you know, is every time we get together, there's always something like that happens, but we can't even get together this year and fight. And all of a sudden it went, doing, 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 doing. So I was like, I got to write this. So, that's where that one came from is, is being home, being home alone, you know, during COVID. And, uh, and it also, we've been, we've actually been testing and playing that song since mid summer and people just get down on the ground laughing because most of us have a situation like that in our family where you get together and there's, you know, something happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I, I don't care. There's always some kind of little rub happens. It can't be go perfect perfectly every time so that song is means a lot because of that and i guess um watercolors in the rain 
is just, you know, a bit of a, a light wake up call to, you know, uh, well, let's pay attention to what the kids do because they're more innocent than we are. They don't, they haven't lived and seen some of the things that maybe might've made us not bitter, but maybe a little darker thinking, you know, let's try to, you know, check that song out. That's a cool song. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it also talks about how fragile because the title being watercolors in the rain of how fragile we are as as human beings, you know, we're sensitive people, we're sensitive, you know, and I think that portrays that in that song. And then that's a fact, Jack, I got to be honest with you is I always write happy songs for the most part and or funny songs or whatever party songs. And being here in the United States last year with this COVID and then all this terrible mess that was going on in our country besides that we won't talk about it but uh ridiculous and and it i guess it got the best of me and i just i had to have a say about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fact jack you know <laughs> not my nature but you know i, I kind of just i sat and watched tv and i i watched all the sickness and the death and then you know here we have all these people sick and 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 even though it was important, it didn't seem to be the most important agenda on TV. And I'm like, what have we become here? You know, so I just had to say it, you know. It's, <laughs> it's completely understandable. Um, even if you don't want to, you can't help but be surrounded and sometimes just dragged down into that sort of what we would call a pit of despair by what you're seeing and hearing around you, even if you can let it bounce off, the, off you after a while. Right, right. And, uh, you know, let's, I guess that uh, with that said, you know, I think Doug Susanna is a great song. Doug brought that in. Uh, it's a great story about, um, you know, what it's really like to be a musician and have to be gone uh, all the time. But at the same time, I think all your weekend warriors who still live at home and have a day job and play on the weekends and their wife goes with them, and you know, or doesn't then I think they can also relate to it. And I guess that's a, maybe, maybe that's a little selfish take uh, from a musician standpoint, but there, I can't see that other people would have to travel like truck drivers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, there's guys that drive us around in the bus all over North America or wherever that all families can kind of relate to that, that someone having to be gone from home. If it's nothing more from nine to five. Yeah. Well, with that said, I've about talked your leg off, Carl. I guess I'd better get out and get those peppers picked. Thank you very much for watching. You can check us out on GBHBell.com as well as on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Go to Patreon to help us out over there. That's patreon.com forward slash GBHBL, as well as Big Cartel, where you can find some of our merchandise. We have a podcast running on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you like this video, do us a favor, hit the subscribe button and help the channel grow. Games, horror and heavy metal, what else is life for?